2020 has truly been a turbulent year and brought forth a new set of challenges on how we live and how we communicate. And as such, we have needed to find ways to adapt and grow. We have adapted our podcast to be a live stream through Zoom, and we've brought a new co-host on board. So everyone, please give a warm welcome to Reem Hasna, a graduate student from Sidra Medicine in Qatar. It's a pleasure for me to be the new member of the Gastronauts family. Hi, everyone. And we are so excited to continue diving deep on gut-brain matters and learning about the scientists behind the science. So come join me as we explore the steps that go into shaping a scientist on the Gastronauts podcast. everyone. We would like to welcome you all to our sixth year of Gastronauts. For those of you who have been with us from the beginning, we would like to thank you all for your commitment. For those of you just tuning in, we are happy to have you join our community. Here at Gastronauts, our ambition is to foster discussion and spread knowledge on gut-brain matters. What started as a seminar series led by Dr. Diego Borges in 2015 has now expanded into an international symposium and a podcast aimed at exploring the scientist behind the science. Today, we invite you to join us in thinking and talking about why we eat. My name is Peter, and I, along with Reem Hasna, will be your hosts. So without further ado, let's introduce our speakers. Dr. Lisa Butler is an assistant professor of medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She is a physician scientist aiming to study how the gut and brain communicate with each other to maintain body weight. Dr. Butler received her MD and PhD from the University of Washington, where she studied how input from NMDA receptors onto medium spiny neurons, inhibitory neurons in the basal ganglia, are critical for learning in Dr. Richard Palmiter's laboratory. She then proceeded to specialize clinically in endocrinology and began studying how a subset of neurons in the hypothalamus, these AGRP neurons, are involved in regulating hunger in Dr. Zachary Knight's lab. And she is currently studying how obesity affects the ability of these neurons to detect certain nutrients. Dr. Anthony Sclafani is a professor of psychology at Brooklyn College at the City University of New York. He has had a truly distinguished career of over 50 years in studying the neurochemical circuits that govern learned taste preferences. He has served as the past president of both the Society of the Study of Ingestive Behavior and the Obesity Society, and has authored over 300 publications. Dr. Sclafani began his research into ingestive behavior in Dr. Pete Grossman's laboratory, where he developed a wire knife to dissect neural pathways involved in an obesity syndrome generated from damage to the hypothalamus. From there, he has pioneered studies that have helped answer how specific features of food promote appetite and the brain reward systems that are activated from the consumption of palatable foods. Sometimes eating is not a reward. So what do you think of this? So that's a very good question. I mean, one way to look at it is that the brain is basically turned on by food almost all the time. And if the food is satiating, then it generates signals that temporarily turn us off. Or if we accumulate too much fat, we have long-term signals like leptin that keeps our appetite somewhat limited. 
But when you look at the behavior of these sham feeding animals, for example, whereas a normal rat when food deprived would drink maybe 10 mLs of a sugar solution, if you let the sugar fall out of its stomach in the 30 minute period you test it, it might drink 50 or 60 mLs of the solution. So there's no inhibition and it seems to be just permanently driving this reward system. You know, there are situations like with anorexia nervosa or with animals that hibernate and they show cyclic changes in their, uh, you know, approach to food uh, that the brain may be turned off to food. But it might be a good biological bet that if there's food there and it's uh, nutritious and it tastes, well, eat it when you can. Food is certainly always rewarding to me. <laughs> me too. Um, <laughs> I, think I, I think I overall agree with that. But I will say that one of the reasons why I got into this field, I think there's a, there's a few reasons why I was interested in studying feeding and studying obesity. One is very related to my medical school experience and my life experience with obese people and wanting to figure out why they were obese because it just makes their life so much harder for something that is really not within their control. But the other reason that I really got into this is because I, I personally come from a family where about half of us are complete food maniacs and the other half of us really, you know, eat to survive. You know, dinner at dinner, they eat because it's like time to eat dinner. And so they eat a small meal and then they can stop. And so I think that there's like people are probably tuned differently as to how rewarding food is and to how far they will go. And I think, you know, kind of related to that, if you look at an average healthy, like 25 year old guy will go eat a burrito the size of his head and feel really great afterwards and kind of learn nothing from the experience that maybe that's overnutrition and not great. But you take that same person at the age of 40 or 50 or whatever, some later age, and probably at some point part of the way through the burrito, they're going to be like, whoa, if I eat more than this, I'm going to feel not great later. So I think that probably breaks maybe get put on more in general later in life and are also on at different levels in different people. Do you think that sensing and ingestive behavior is altered with the aging process? So as we age, we tend to have new circuits, new neuronal circuits or less of the effect of a specific sugar or a specific nutrient on our food preference? That's a good question. We certainly know with aging, the sensitivity of the olfactory system declines, and that could interfere with the appetite of elderly people. And unfortunately, many COVID patients have a loss of primarily odor, and that interferes with their attraction to food. We have not looked at aging animals for their post-oral nutrient response. I think that's an excellent question. And uh, someone should write up an R01 application for that project. I totally agree. I think we don't know from any of the models that we use what aging does. We just know kind of from the human experience and from mouse models what Tony said about the olfaction going down. I think an interesting question is whether the homeostatic set point for body weight changes in aging people. Does it get lower? Are we supposed to get skinnier? Does our brain think we should be skinnier when we're older? Or do the negative consequences of eating too much just begin to alter our behavior? And hopefully in the coming years, we'll find out the answer to that question. Has having a career in science of feeding altered your own food choices? I'm not so sure. I mean, I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I've been experimenting with some, uh, some 
recent developments in nutrition, there are these rare sugars called isomaltolose and allulose that are being promoted because isomaltolose is a sucrose type molecule that's slowly digested. So it doesn't produce a spike in blood glucose. And we've actually shown that mice will drink it, but they show less of a conditioning response to it. And allulose is a um, fructose molecule that's not digested. Uh, it's not metabolically used. You could buy cereal products, but contain this fructose molecule that allows them to say the sugar, the cereal contains no sugar because you can't use it. And I've actually purchased the, the cereal, but it wasn't uh, particularly tasty to me. So I haven't uh, pursued that very much. But, uh, you know, I've, I've have experimented with some products such as sweet taste inhibitors, but I'm not sure it really has changed my long-term nutritional inputs. I think probably uh, working in the field that I do both in science and in medicine should have changed my eating behavior more than it has, but I think overall it has not. I think maybe if I'm being generous to myself, I would say that working in the feeding and in the obesity fields has at least made me try to focus on eating foods that I actually really love and not eating foods simply because they're available, but I still eat way too much. A question that I really want to ask you, Lisa, so as both we are females in science, how do you think your work might have been affected if you were in the field 50 years ago? Oh, man. <laughs> um, I, don't know if, I don't know if I would have been in the field 50 years ago, to be honest. I don't know how my life would have been different 50 years ago, but I'm very grateful to be doing science now. God, I've not ever been asked quite this question. I will say that I count myself as someone who's enormously privileged. There are a large number of scientists and physicians in my family. My great-grandmother on my dad's dad's side was a physician. And so I feel like I've experienced less barriers than many, many women and many, many certainly women of color have experienced in getting into science and medicine. So I want to start by just one, expressing my gratitude and saying that I think that comparatively I've had it fairly easy. But as I've transitioned to being a PI and I have uh, women trainees, I notice the ways that they're conditioned to behave differently than men still. And I feel like I've worked to overcome some of that over the last 15 years. And my hope is that I can take my privilege and pay that forward to the next generation of women. Because I, like I, if it had been 50 years ago, I may not have gone into science. And I hope that in another 50 years, it's, it's easier still and more equitable still for women and other groups. These times have been really changing. And hopefully, we're going to make a lot more progress in the coming years for both, I guess, the diversity and inclusion efforts. And thinking about the changes that we have in our society has also made me think about the technological advances and how things are developing at a blistering pace, really. Some of the work that you, Dr. Sclafani, started as were these coarse dissections and creating lesions in the hypothalamus. And now we can actually target really specific neuronal populations through light or through chemicals. How do you leverage the implementation of these latest technologies against methods that you have developed in your laboratory that you know are tried and true? And how do you go about including or incorporating collaborative efforts for things like this? Right. I am in total awe of the work that's being done today uh, in manipulating the brain with these super sophisticated procedures. 
when I was in graduate school 55 years ago, which by the way, I don't recall how many women we had in our class. I think it was very few. At the time we were manipulating the brain by putting a wire in the brain and passing electricity and destroying thousands and thousands of cells. My PhD advisor was uh, one of the first scientists to actually put drugs into the brain to manipulate the activity of chemo-specific ways. But at that time, believe it or not, we were putting the drug in the brain in crystalline form. We didn't have the technique to inject solutions. So we just stuck a crystal at the end of a stainless steel tube. That's how crude it was. So in my lab, I never developed these uh, super sophisticated techniques. We were uh, manipulating the gut and lucky to be able to get sham feeding animals and self-infusing animals. And that gave us a lot to keep us busy. But uh, I just love the work that's being done today by both men and many women. Can I add something to that? Yes, yes please. Sure. So even, even as like looking on a shorter time scale, I had basically a five year interruption in doing science between when I finished my graduate work and when I started my postdoctoral research because I was finishing my clinical training. And even in those five years between 2011 and 2016, I got back into science and was like, holy crap, this is really, really different than how I left it. I was pivoting fields as well. So that was certainly a component, but really the actual tools and technologies available had just completely exploded in the last five years. And it was both awe-inspiring and terrifying. So I think that this is an exponential process and we'll see, we'll see how it continues going. But also from my perspective as a pretty junior investigator, I learn so much by going back to some of the old literature. Not like, you know, when, when somebody brings me a paper and says, this is really old and it's from 2001 or something like that, but really going back to when people were thinking and only had the tools to study the very most fundamental aspects of biology or much more fundamental aspects of biology, I think you can learn a lot and uh, save a lot of reinventing some wheels and generate a lot of really cool questions by looking at these older studies. could offer your graduate students any self-advice of wisdom of what you gained throughout your expertise and throughout your career? What would it be and why? Well, I think you have to be willing to change fields as needed and utilize the most the latest techniques. But one early experience that I had that was very instrumental, when I first came up with the idea that there was a polycoast taste, I submitted an NIH grant it was rejected and I resubmitted the grant and it was rejected a second time. And in those days, the good old days, you could submit it a third time. And I submitted the grant a third time. And I think I wore them out because I asked for four years of funding, but they only gave me two. And then in those two years, I had already collected so much private, you know, prior data. I finally had a breakthrough and showed convincing evidence, and they subsequently supported the grant for 30 years, and I never had a problem, you know, getting funded. But if I gave up too soon, I don't know where I would have been. So if you think you have a good idea, 
don't give it up too soon. Uh, give it a try a couple of times. As a trainee, rather than focusing on the duration of your training or how close or far you are from your next goal, focus on whether you like going to work every day or not. Because if you like going to work on more days than you don't like going to work, I think you're probably doing something right. And this is a, it's a long path for all of us. So don't get too, too hung up on the number of years you are from your next thing. Just enjoy what you're doing and use that as your barometer for whether you're doing the right thing. That's really great advice. Uh, yeah. I think that's something I've been doing with myself lately. Like, how many days do I wake up and I'm happy doing what I'm doing? Right. Right? And if the answer is less than 50%, I maybe need to change my career path or something. But. Maybe not change your career. <laughs> change your team. The team plays a huge effect. So when you have a great team mm-hmm. of people, and then you want to wake up every morning just to have coffee with them and just talk science. Where do you see the field of gut-brain communication going in the future? And how do you want to be a part of this? I think I see it as really turning into more than just one field. I don't know that I consider gut-brain communication to be a totally unified field. My focus is on body weight maintenance. Tony's focus is on development of taste preference. Are those two things related? Yes, but Tony's built and I'm building an independent career on two aspects of this thing that are completely different. Um, I think that the direction that... I'm probably overall most excited about and hope to contribute to is understanding how genetics lead to differences that promote or protect from obesity. Why body weight maintenance succeeds in some people and fails in others is what keeps me up at night. And I think that the way we're going to ultimately understand that from a gut brain perspective is to really drill down the molecular. Uh, aspects of this and the genetic aspects of this. We need much more translation in our research because while it's very easy to condition a mouse and a rat with intragastric infusions, it's much more difficult to demonstrate food learning in adults, uh, adult humans, although children are, seem to learn much, much more readily. There's something missing and it, part of it is the complexity of the human environment and the foods that we eat but there may be differences in how rapid humans form development, you know, developmental responses to uh, GI changes. So some of our experiments are gonna have to be safely translated to human work and see how we can uh, understand the difference between humans and rodents in this regard. Because it's easy to make animals obese and maybe prevent them becoming from obese, obviously in a clinical situation, it's much more difficult. Yeah, certainly. A lot of the goals with regards to obesity are not particularly for mice. It'd be great if we never had any obese mice, but uh, we want to translate this impact to humans in these socially complicated diseases like obesity and anorexia. What is the biggest barrier to communicating this information to the public? Well, it's very difficult. Every week you'll read the New York Times, the Washington Post, or some magazine, and they'll highlight a recent study that came out. And it sounds like, you know, it's the best thing since white bread was invented. And it turns out they overhyped the results. So the results were based on a small group size, or in some cases, it's based on a limited number of human subjects uh, in an experiment. So it's very difficult for the news media, I think, to uh, do a, a 
a good job in presenting the data because they're always looking for the hottest headline to, and then people, they don't pay attention to it because the story keeps changing. So mm-hmm. now we have, you know, artificial sweeteners cause overweight, sugar causes overweight. What, what should people do? They don't know what to do. I think the overhyping is a huge, huge issue. And I think some people respond by not listening, but I think that unfortunately some fraction of the population might respond by listening too much and get really fixated on ideas that were sold to them as being potentially like a really great cure, but are either not practicable or not going to be effective. And it leads to kind of recurrent disappointment and really doesn't help anyone. And I think another another problem with communicating to the public is just that, you know, this is my job and it's really, really hard to stay on top of the amount of literature that's coming out on this. And for somebody who doesn't do this as their career and even for the media to keep up on the literature as it really is, I think it is probably borderline impossible. Yeah, I think I've talked to some friends who are not really in the scientific field and a lot of times they'll be like, oh, I thought we cured that disease already. <laughs> um, and it's just like, no, we've just learned more and more about it, uh, but mm-hmm. there's still a lot of work to be done. To transition a bit about our communication to the public, communication amongst scientists. And I, I really wanna thank you both for participating in this new experimental seminar type format. And I'm curious to hear how you felt the dissemination of scientific knowledge has changed over the past 20 to 50 years, from an era before PowerPoint presentations, Dr. Sklafani, to a time of now we have these virtual conferences. What principles have enabled the presentation to be so memorable or having a long-lasting impact? And how do you think these types of presentations or dissemination of knowledge will continue to evolve? Well, I, I think these new methods are very effective. Uh, we used to take us weeks to prepare our slides for a slide talk. Uh, and now we could do everything almost instantaneously, include the latest data. When I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, we literally had to go to the library and look in Index Medicus or Psych Abstracts to find out what the research was. Today, on your telephone, you could look up PubMed and find out what the latest uh, news is. But the latest news doesn't always tie back to the older studies. So, you know, you you have to be very careful in looking at what's the latest, brightest thing and try and put everything in context. But as far as communication wise, I'm, I I just love uh, these new forms of communication. And I think that's something that stayed consistent through, I mean, I don't, I can't speak from experience from Uh, 20 or 30 years ago, but something that has stayed the same, at least at the level of the literature, and as long as I've been in science, is that whatever the technology is that is used to disseminate new scientific stories, the key to doing so successfully is to tell a story. And the science that I read and the science that sticks with me and the presentations that stick with me are those that really succeed in telling a story and answering the why and then proceeding logically through the how and what it showed. And in fact, that's how I came to be in neuroscience, which is a field that I, when I was younger, swore I would never go into. for people who are considering to to be a part of this field, what advice do you give them for young scientists, graduate students, or just high school students that might have listened to us? My advice is it's, to me, it's been an exciting way of life. I spent 50 years or more in the laboratory. 
I was fortunate, however, to be funded. Um, I'm a little nervous if I was a, a new student, what the funding situation is going to be. But it's, uh, it's you know, it's exploration. Science is just wonderful to uh, increase your understanding of the universe. As a young investigator, I am nervous about the funding situation <laughs> and where my career is going to be or not be in five years. But as I alluded to before, I like going to work every day. Like I look forward to going into the lab and seeing my students and talking to them and talking to my technician. And that's, I can't think of a better barometer for, for choosing a career than that. And I guess my other advice, which I think is easier advice to give than probably to take, but something that I would advise um, young scientists or young people thinking they want to get into scientists is to not be afraid to reach out to us. Because as you can probably tell, we really love talking about what we do and answering questions and talking to, to young scientists and young people who want to do science is one of the highlights of what I get to do. So if you're curious, send an email. If we don't respond, send another email. We won't get mad at you. And just keep at it and keep trying to get your, your foot into the door. Like I said, that's easier for me to say than to do. And that also comes from a fair amount of privilege. But hopefully if this can get to some ears that were reluctant to actually send an email because they don't want to be a bother because they don't know if it's appropriate, it is and do it. I agree. Thank you, guys. A huge thank you from the Gastronauts family to the audience who attended today's episode. Your presence matters the most to us. Also, we would like to thank our speakers, Dr. Butler and Dr. Scalfani, who gave us from their precious time to share with us their science and knowledge. A final remark, I'm really thankful and excited to be the newest member of the Gastronauts family and to be co-hosting these episodes with Peter. See you in our next episode. Stay tuned. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Dr. Butler and Dr. Scalfani taught us many fascinating things, but the major highlight of this podcast is that what we eat shapes how we eat and that different nutrients activate different receptor and as a consequence, different pathways. Also in this episode, we received a great advice that in science, never stop trying and keep on going. Knock many doors and send many emails. With that, I want to thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. For more of our content, you can follow us on the new Twitter account, Gut Brain Matters, or visit our website, thinkgastronauts.com. The Gastronaut Podcast would be impossible without our incredible team. Meredith is our producer and theme music composer. And a special thanks to the founders of Gastronaut, Dr. Diego Pohorkis and the Pohorkis Laboratory. Thank you.